you have a copy of God's Word, let's look together this morning at Mark chapter 10. You can see the pulpit's not up here, and let me assure you that it has nothing to do with some profound aesthetic theological statement um, or change. Um, this is really here because of the weakness of your pastor. Um, just to tell you all, I've been feeling more confined up here, and I don't know why, other than this plate up here always moves, and we've tried to fix it, and we can't. So I'm trying something new. So bear with me. This is not some profound theological statement that we're getting rid of the pulpit and the Word of God. This is just to help me, and I'm trying something new. So bear with me. If we take out the Bible, then you can be really upset about that, but hopefully just not having the pulpit up here is okay. Mark 10, 17 through 31. It's the verses I'm going to be reading this morning. And I just simply want to remind you, as long as you still hear the Word of God, as long as we still read the Scriptures, as long as you still have the Scriptures, you have to know God has not abandoned you. Every time you hear this, you must be reminded that He's not abandoned you. Listen to this story. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. O Lord in heaven, we have sung together that we desire for you to lay us down. 
We desire that you, would lay, that you would lay us down as we understand and as the truth of your word comes to bear on our lives. Lord, your truth, the gospel, the good news is not just something that's for, it's just for thinking about or just, you know, an idea, but it is your power unto salvation. Would you help us, Lord? by connecting our lives to your truth. Help us to follow through and understand this passage. Lay us down, change us, encourage us. Encourage us by not letting us have confidence in ourselves. But give us grace that we might let go of the confidence we have in ourselves and have fresh confidence, fresh hope, fresh power in our Savior. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. We've crossed the halfway, halfway point in the book of Mark, and I wanted to remind you, because we're prone to forget, that God has given us the gospel account to encourage us. Because most of the time, his people are not very encouraged. Most of the time, we are very pessimistic. And God wants us to be encouraged, and he wants us to be hopeful, and he wants us to look forward to the future. And in order to enliven our encouragement and in order to strengthen us for the future, he gives us the gospel accounts. Because the gospel accounts reintroduce and introduce us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, God is showing us Christ's life and death and resurrection that he has victoriously assaulted the kingdom of darkness. In short, God, through the work of Christ, has defeated death, he's defeated our enemies, and his power is greater than all of our sin. And he is really at work in the world, and he wants us to know that and live by that. So we're halfway through the book, a little bit over halfway through the book, and we come to this story this morning, and I want to show you two things. The first thing I want to show you is how serious this encounter is. And the second is, I want you to understand, by God's grace, how we are involved in this conversation that's going on between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Understand this is a very serious encounter, and that we are part of this conversation that's going on between Christ and the rich young ruler. First, let's look at this. This is a serious encounter. If you look at verse 16, excuse me, verse 17, it tells you right from the beginning that we are talking about eternal life. We're talking about living forever. If you look at verse 24, it tells you that this story is about entering or not entering the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 26, this tells you that this story is about salvation. So this story is kind of important. It's pretty serious. God wants, wants us to also understand that in thinking about salvation, in thinking about entering the kingdom of God, in thinking about living eternally, living forever, yes, we are going to live forever. In thinking about all of those things, Jesus wants us to know very clearly, I think he makes it plain in verse 25, that with man... Entering the kingdom, beginning salvation, inheriting eternal life is impossible. 
And with God, all things are possible. But with human beings entering the kingdom, thinking about eternal life, beginning salvation is impossible. Jesus even drives this point home by illustrating it. He's saying, you know, getting into the kingdom, beginning salvation, inheriting eternal life is impossible with you. It's impossible with me. It's kind of like if you have a little needle and you got a great big camel. That camel can't go through the eye of the needle. You can't do it. It's not, it's not going to happen. So Jesus says, just know, you cannot begin this. You cannot inherit this. You cannot enter on your own strength. And then, if you're not confused enough yet, look at verse 31. This is really serious. It's about salvation. It's about entering the kingdom. It's about eternal life. It's impossible to happen with you. It's impossible that it starts with you. It's impossible that it starts with me. And verse 31, well, Jesus is supposed to be turning our worlds upside down. He says in verse 31, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Because he knows that we all live in a culture, we all live in a world in which being first is the desirable thing. We want to be better than everybody else. We want to be first. As a matter of fact, we even have slogans, don't we? There's first, and then after that, there's the first loser, and then the next loser. There is the winner, and then everybody else loses, right? Jesus is turning our world upside down. This story is supposed to turn our world, our thinking, our life upside down so that we'll understand what he's talking about. Well, that means that we are part of this conversation. Isn't it awesome how this begins? Look at verse 17. Here's the story. Jesus is on his way, and this young man is running after Jesus. Jesus is walking down the road, and the young man is chasing him down. He is running, sprinting after Christ. And he comes up to Christ, and he kneels down before him. Did you catch that? And then he asks Jesus this question. He says, good teacher, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We find out from the story that this young man is a spiritual leader in the local synagogue. We find out that this man is moral. We find out that this man is, uh, uh, is wealthy. And this man comes to Jesus, this young man comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? A paraphrase of this would, be this, would, would go like this. Good teacher, how can I be entitled to life everlasting? How can I be entitled to everlasting life? That's his question. Now, before we get into Jesus' answer, there's something else that we need to pick up on. And that is verse 21. I want you to see that Jesus tells us straight away, he loved this man. Look at verse 21. This is what it says. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That means 
when this man comes running to Christ and kneels down before him and asks him the question, Jesus' answer is an answer out of love. This means that we cannot interpret Jesus' answer to him in any other way other than that, the fact that Jesus loved him. Jesus is not angry with him. He's not being snarky with him. He loved this man. And that's important. This man says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him in verse 18, why do you call me good? You might think, well, Jesus should be a little bit more direct in this, but he was answering the guy. He was answering him very well. It's just, it just might not be in the way that you would expect. Jesus is trying to get this man to think. He's trying to get this man to reflect. You see, Jesus doesn't have a canned way of dealing with everybody. Jesus looks at people and he sees people. He sees human beings with a story and a life. And he doesn't try to can his, his response. He, does, he handles different people differently all the time. The Scriptures show us that over and over and over. He doesn't look at us. He doesn't look at you. He didn't look at this man as a project. He looked at him as a regular human being, as a person. It's the same way he looks at you. He looks at you. He looks at me as a person. And he cares about you and he cares about your story. You see, Jesus is forcing this guy to reflect. It's as if he's saying to him, well, God alone is good, right? Your question seems to indicate that you think I am good. Well, if God alone is good and you say that I'm good, do you think I'm God? Do you? Do you think, young man, do you think that I am God? Do you think that I came from God, that the Father sent me, and that I came to be the Messiah? Why do you call me good? Because only God is good. So are you meaning that you think that I'm God? Well, there's no answer to that, is there? Jesus then, in verse 19, lists the commandments. And is it interesting to note that of the commandments that Jesus lists, they all deal with how we relate to one another. Maybe Jesus ended this list with the commandment we have here, honor your father and mother. Maybe he ended with that particular commandment, just throwing this out for you to think about, because that's the commandment that has a promise connected to it. Remember, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. This man comes and says, how can I be entitled to eternal life? Jesus. And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? And here are the commandments. Even this one. Honor your father and mother. He's thinking about, the young man is thinking about eternal life, and maybe Jesus throws this out to him to get him to think about, to get him to reflect about his own life. You see, Jesus throws out the law not just so the man could hear it. He still wants him to reflect even more. He wants the young man, he wants you, he wants me to reflect on what we think of Christ and if we're connecting the fact that God is good to Christ and are we saying that Jesus is God? If Jesus is good and God alone is good, then are we saying that Jesus is God? But then he wants the young man to reflect on his own life. 
In the same way that when you read the commandments, in the same way that you look at the law of God, you are to reflect on your own life. Not just thinking about, oh, have I done all these things outwardly? But do I realize that God's law, God's will, actually reaches deep, deep, deep inside of me? That God's word, what he's laid out in his word, is not just saying, hey, outwardly do all these things and everything will be fine, but that actually God's will reaches to the deepest parts of us. His commands, his word, his will actually challenges our thoughts, the secret ones, you know, your secret thoughts that you don't let out a lot. It actually challenges our motives, my motives and your motives. It actually get at, gets at the why we do everything. God's will is completely comprehensive for us. And Jesus is wondering if this man thinks of God's will and thinks of God's word as just saying how to live outwardly. He wants to see if this man will reflect and realize, oh yeah, the law of God penetrates deep into my character. He wants him to pause and think about the inside. But the young man says, I have a clear conscience. All these I have kept from my youth. Do you remember that? Jesus, I have a clear conscience about this will of God. I've done it. I've done it my whole life. I know I'm young, but I've done it all. I've obeyed, I've followed, I've loved, I've done it all. Now, the disciples at this point must have been thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, most of us are fishermen, and we don't have a lot of resources, and we don't have much pull and much power in the culture we live in, but this guy, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a ruler in the local synagogue, and he's got all kinds of resources. Jesus, we can use this guy. What are you doing? We're trying to advance your kingdom here. We're trying to make things go forward. This is the guy that we want. This is the guy we need. He's young. He's spry. He's got resources. We need resources. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I tell you I was really pierced because I realized my default mode is that I want my son to be this guy. And I want my daughters to marry this guy. That's my default mode. And how wrong I am. How wrong the disciples were if they were thinking that. Because this guy didn't really understand, did he? Now, yes, all of us can think, well, my daughter would be better off if she married someone like this. My son is going to make it in the world if he achieves this. But we would all be wrong. We would all be wrong, starting right with me. I am wrong. I was wrong. Well, how do you help someone like this young man who is dependent on himself? How do you address someone who thinks that they have outwardly done everything that God requires 
How do you help someone that has a standing in the local synagogue? How do you help someone that has tremendous wealth and they are dependent upon themselves and their only question is, what do I do? How do we help someone who says that and thinks that? That might be you. Maybe that's the only question you ever ask every week, in every situation, in every circumstance. What do I do? Now, don't get me wrong. Asking what you need to do is a very important question. We all need to ask that question. But if that's the only question we ever have, if that's the only question, there's a problem. You see, Jesus, first, let's do this. You see, this guy has youth, he has wealth, he has morality, but do you see, do you see what's going on? Do, do you see it yet? He is missing something. You get it? He's got youth, he has wealth, he has status, but he's missing something. That's why he asks. He's not confident. He is lacking confidence. He's missing something in his life. He is insecure. He's not sure. And he even expects that he is going to be able to do Jesus' answer. You see, something is missing in this guy's life. Just like those of us that struggle with being overly confident. And we all struggle with being overly confident in all kinds of ways. And those that struggle with overconfidence in whatever way, you're always wondering, what am I missing? What am I not doing? And you see, Jesus, as always, Jesus has a way of getting to the heart, doesn't he? Jesus has a way of getting personal. Jesus has a way of getting to the dark places of our hearts, those places that we like to leave covered up. Jesus has a way of getting at those dark places and uncovering them. He has a way of getting to those dark places that we like to cover up with a fake smile. Jesus has a way of getting at what's behind our wounds. He has a way of getting underneath our struggles. He has a way of getting behind our goodness. He has a way of challenging and piercing through all of it to get to the core of who we really are. Because he's always after the heart. He's always after the heart. He's after your heart and he's after my heart. And he is always masterful at how he does it. Jesus says this in verse 21, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. With one idea, he dismantles this guy. And with one idea, he dismantles us. He gets that place that we know that we're missing something, and he gets there by this idea of generosity. How do you talk with someone who's overconfident? How do you deal with your own sense of entitlement and your own sense of confidence that always leaves you wondering? It always leaves you not sure. One way 
is to go after generosity. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You see, wherever we are depending on ourselves, we will not be generous. You ever thought about that? Wherever we are depending on ourselves, we will not be generous. For example, if you think that your goodness and your morality comes from you and happened because of you, then you will be less likely to be generous toward anyone else who isn't quite as moral as you. If you're depending on your morality and depending on your ethics and you are completely sold out that, that you made this happen, then you will always struggle to be generous to those who don't live like you do, who don't think like you do, and who aren't as mature as you are, and who don't know as much as you do. And if you think that the wealth that you have and the resources that you have came to you because you made it happen, because your wealth is dependent on you and your drive and your energy and your ingenuity, you will really struggle to be generous toward those who have less. And you will think, well, I've done this. It's on me. I have all responsibility for this. I've done everything. And they just need to hurry up and get with the program. They don't have enough. They don't have what they need, and it's completely their fault. By the way, we all are responsible on both sides, aren't we? And the point is that where we are most dependent on ourselves, we tend to be the less generous. We tend to struggle with being generous. You see, Jesus is going after the heart. He's not telling all of us to get rid of all of our money now. Please don't leave the doors of this church and say, well, this is what the preacher said today. This is what Jesus said, that we just need to get rid of all of our money. God put us in a world in which there's money. And it's not, it's not unspiritual. It, it, it's, not, it's not wrong for us to talk about money. It's not wrong for Jesus to talk about money. As a matter of fact, God wants us to think about money. He wants us to talk about money because some way, somehow, at some point in your life, you are going to struggle with money. You're going to. And you're either, you're either going to struggle on the side of, I need to get more and more and more and more, and you're going to develop your identity from that, or you're going to develop your identity because you're so frugal. You know? Certainly you know those that think to themselves, well, I'm great because I have all this money, or this is what I'm after, or this is what I have to have in order for me to be somebody. By the same token, you know how we all struggle with wanting to brag about how good a deal we got on everything, and how we got a better price than the other person, and how we're so frugal. You see, we can develop our identity on either one, can't we? And Jesus says, no, you need to talk about this because you're going to struggle with it one way or another. You see, many have pointed this out, so I'm not telling you anything new in what I'm about to say here. Money, in a way, gives us the ability to choose. The, the more money we have, the more choices we have. And the more choices we have, the more things that we can take care of. And the more things that we can take care of, 
the more satisfaction we feel. You see? Because the more money we have and the more choices we can make, the more we think we can control. And that's why we get such a sense of accomplishment through money. It's why we get such a rush of control, such a sense of sufficiency. Because money drives us. Money was driving this particular man. And it's the same problem we have today. This young man's problem is no different than our problem. There's an article that came out in 2013 in the Atlantic that was talking about charitable giving. And the point of the article was that those that make more money Usually, I think 79% of the time, those that give more money end up giving a smaller percentage of their money to charity. And those that make less money give a greater percentage of their money away. If you do any research on those that follow giving trends in the church, what you will find is that people give, but it's usually not very much. A recent survey said that 79% of evangelical Christians give. Of that 79%, 55% give $500 or less. 33% give $100 to $500 a year. 8% give $2,500 to $5,000. Doesn't this pierce us as well? The more dependent we are, In whatever areas that we find our confidence and depend, in those areas we will be less generous. All of us struggle with money. We struggle to be generous. And you see, the truth is, God has given us money so that we can participate in what He is doing. God gives us money so that we can participate in what He is doing in building His kingdom. It's a way that we can show love. It's a way that we can show this is what's important. It's a way that we can show, yes, I am invested in eternal things. I'm interested in what is going to matter for eternity. And God gives us money so that we can show that we love Him. And we love what He is about. It's amazing. Because you wouldn't think that God could use or would use sinful human beings. But he does. And he delights to. And he wants to. And we need to rejoice and be thankful in that. Well, no sooner does Jesus say that when you notice Peter's response. Look at verse 28. you got to love this. Well, Well, Jesus, we've given away everything. We've left everything to follow you. Now, I actually think that Peter was being very sincere here in a very true way. But isn't it funny just how his mind works? Maybe, maybe he sees Jesus talking to this young man and he thinks to himself, now's my opportunity to show Jesus how much I love him. Jesus, I've heard you. And we have given everything. Well, you know, Jesus doesn't even, in a sense... What Jesus does in response to Peter is that he lavishes encouragement on him. And he lavishes encouragement on us, doesn't he? 
Look at verse 29 and 30 with me. Peter began to say to him in verse 28, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Don't you love it that the text tells you in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, and it's almost like Peter got part of what he, what he wanted to say out, and Jesus said, that's enough, Peter. This is what you need to know. <laughs> Jesus, we've left every, Jesus, Peter, let me tell you. Let me encourage you. You need to know, Peter, no matter what you said, and you didn't even get to finish, no matter what you might have said, which probably was going to be wrong, you need to know, Peter, you need to be encouraged what you think you gave up, you are going to get blessings now and in the future. And Peter, that blessing for the future is life everlasting with me. And what you get now is you get the church. Don't you love it how he parallels brothers and sisters? Now, beloved, this morning, I know I'm going over, but please bear with me. Let's keep going. Jesus has given you, he's given me the church. And it is to be a place of incredible encouragement. Now I know from the beginning, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for how you have been hurt by the church. I join you. I've been there. I've been hurt by the church. And I'm sorry that you have been hurt by the church too. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Because right here is what Jesus says the church is supposed to be like. You see, it's in the church that we learn how to live with people. And that's hard. It's not easy. And that means there's going to be conflict. And that means there's going to be disagreement. But you know what? God's given you the church so that you can learn how to live together. So that we can learn how to live together. Those of you that have been here for a long time, remember, I've already said I'm sorry for those of you who have been hurt by the church. But we've got to focus on the good things because there's too many. And if you're really hurt by the church and you want to talk more, I'm happy to do that. But just, just listen. Jesus wants you to know that you're going to experience love in the church that you often don't even see in your own family. And for some of you, I'm sure you have better friends, closer friends here in the body of Christ than you have in your own family. You're going to get unexpected expressions of love here in the church that you don't get at home, that you don't get in your family. Your family may not like the fact at all that you love the Lord Jesus and that you prioritize this church at all. And they don't understand a thing you're doing. But you've got hundreds of people that are here saying, we get it, we understand. You see, in the church we learn that grace is deeper than blood. Or at least we learn that the blood of Christ is what leads us and unites us. This place, the church, Jesus says, is supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a place where you can experience special moments together. Births and deaths and challenges 
They're part of the church's existence, and we are united together to help each other. Peter, you might think you've given up everything, but let me tell you the blessings you have now, much less eternal life to come. You get to know me, and you get to know my people, and you get to worship. You get to worship with my people. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade. Jesus is quick to encourage you too. If you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do if I join this church, if I become part of this church, if I give my life to Christ, if I entrust myself to him? Well, just take Jesus at his word and just know that when he puts you together with his people, there's going to be conflict and it's going to be hard and you might even get scars, but they're all redemptive. He will show you love in his church, supposedly, better than you've ever experienced. Well, this encounter with the young man ends with him going away in disappointment, doesn't it? Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. So I ask you this morning, has Jesus ever been so straightforward with you that you got disheartened? Have you ever known his love that's so deep and so penetrating that you went away upset? Have you ever known the love of Christ that's so piercing that he told you that you're not good enough? That he would look you straight in the eye and say, you are not good enough. Does that offend you? Because it should, in the best possible way. Jesus is at work in your life and at work in my life. And you see, this whole story is prefaced by this little phrase, and as he was on his journey, as he was on the way to his journey, you know where, you know where that journey was leading? To the cross. Jesus was on his way to the cross when this man ran up to him and knelt down. You see, don't forget, that Jesus is on this journey. And he's saying to you, and he's saying to me, I must be your goodness. He is saying to you, and he's saying to me, that I must be your wealth, I must be your morality, I must be your treasure, I must be your hope, I must be your confidence. You must have a clear conscience about me. Don't have a clear conscience about you. That would mean you don't need me but realize that I must be everything. I am what is missing in your life. And if you have me, then you have everything, now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us these stories. We prayed it over and over and over. They're rich, they're challenging, and indeed they talk about serious stuff. Lord, we thank you for including us in this discussion and this conversation. We thank you for reminding us that we oftentimes want to depend on ourselves. And oftentimes we want money to define who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And that we fail to be generous. Lord, would you help us by telling us, that we aren't good enough. Tell us that our wealth won't get us anywhere. Tell us 
that we lack generosity. Tell us that the Lord Jesus must be our goodness, our wealth, our hope, our generosity, our behavior, our morality, our future, our present, our everything. Lord, don't leave us alone until we want this truth from Christ, that he is our all, and that in having him, we have a bigger family and a brighter future than we could plan for ourselves. In his name, amen.